It is absolutely lovely to see you uh, from here. Uh, you actually look a lot more attractive when you're far away. I just wanted to let you know that. Uh, up and close and personal, huh? a little suspicious. Uh, but, uh, but from far with my glasses, I'm like, boy, you just look a miracle. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's been four and a half years since I stood in this sacred space uh, and stood right here before you. And, um, and I have uh, I've enjoyed the four and a half years also being part of this family, sitting over there, usually with Tom and with Sherry and Jessica and uh, Kiefer and everybody else. It's just uh, it's good. Even Tommy with his man-sized beard and hair that looks like he's a mountain man out of control. I think he's your competition, Joel. He's your competition. You'll, you should see him afterwards. And I think this is your model. And you can see if you can do that, Tommy. You know. <laughs> Um, but it, is, uh, it has been absolutely beautiful to be part of this amazing community uh, and always a privilege. Jeff, thank you. Um, I know you asked me to preach last year because Christmas is my favorite season and I accepted and then I horribly declined uh, and, uh, and you covered me and uh, I thank you for that. And, um, but it has been, been wonderful to see you. I actually, uh, you know, I was out in Orlando preparing for the One Project Gathering next year, and I went to your church, your, your previous church, with your 14 pastors and uh, your $5.5 million children's center that you spearheaded. And uh, I walked in there and I drooled. It was like, you know, it's a heaven for the children. It's just fantastic, but uh, great leadership, great vision. Um, I will say this publicly. Uh, Becky would often say this about you. She said, uh, I like this pastor. And I was like, more than me? Uh, <laughs> She said, well, he's, he's my kind of pastor. I said, hmm, more than me. And uh, she said, I just like the way he thinks. More than me? And uh, it was this, often this conversation that we had, and you knew that. <laughs> oh, you're real. Oh, okay, all right. We, well, we'll survive then. But uh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, it's great to see everybody online as well. I've been texting a lot of people this morning, and I know that... Uh, Kara and Andrew, you know, you're not here. Uh, I was kind of excited to see them, but, you know, she is my dentist, so maybe I didn't want to see her. Uh, but um, taking care of your kids. And uh, I was telling Andrew, you know, that his kids were sick and uh, he should take care of them and, uh, you know, so they're not taken. And then he suggested that I should do the entire sermon in Liam Neeson's voice, uh, which would be really kind of scary for everybody. Um, so we're not going to go that way. We're not going to go that way. We're going to stay this way. And uh, Stephen and Kira online in London, looking forward to seeing you in January. And uh, so it's a real blessing to be able to be here with you. Uh, let me uh, enter into the space of responsible transparency with you. Um, and uh, maybe by the end, you'll understand why it's so important to me and hopefully also very important to you as well. So June 10. 1993, uh, Becky and I went out on our very first date, official date, that is. I would love to say that I chose um, a rather elegant place, you know, that I, because I have good taste. <laughs> I would like to say that I chose a rather elegant place, but in fact, as a, a poor student, I chose Pizza Hut. Uh, <laughs> we ordered a pizza, uh, it, you know, it wasn't that amazing meal, and I ordered uh, mushrooms and olives. Um, and we soon discovered that uh, Becky didn't like olives, and I don't like mushrooms. And so I did some research online uh, about this, and I discovered that 99% of people do not like mushrooms, and 99% of people love olives. So I was in the 
group that really loves olives, and Becky was in the group that loves mushrooms. And you know, everything on the internet is true. And so it's verifiable because I verified it. Uh, we, we had this great pizza, and it was fantastic, and I loved it. But um, you know, it was a, a memorable, memorable moment. Now, 30 years later, Becky had started to lose a lot of her vision and uh, her speech as well and her ability to write. And what she discovered is that she could, on her phone, record these voice memos. So she recorded 88 different voice memos. And I have listened to all of these voice memos. Um, and there was a three-part mini-series that she did for me uh, where she talked about the infamous date where we went out in June 10, 1993. And I know you're kind of thinking to yourself, why infamous? Was it because of the pizza? No. <laughs> it was because she reminded me that I was broke as a student. I had deposited a check. I know you maybe have never heard of a check before, but I had deposited a check into the bank, and it hadn't cleared. And so by the time this very cheap meal went to the bank, it bounced, and it became the most expensive meal that I've ever had at Pizza Hut. So she laughed about that. We laughed about that. We had a great time despite that. And, uh, we often celebrated June 10. Uh, two years ago, in June 2021, uh, we were going to celebrate June 10, our anniversary, when we first went on our official date. And uh, so she was flying in to Sacramento. I was going to go pick her up at the airport, and we were going to drive to San Francisco and have a fantastic weekend in San Francisco, look at the art, have some great restaurants, ignore all the pizza, uh, and, uh, and have a really great time inside there. About 15 minutes before... I arrived at Sacramento Airport, driving down I-80. I got a text from my brother, and I must apologize, I do read texts while I'm driving, and, uh, <laughs> and I do respond via Siri, of course, uh, while I'm driving, but uh, I read the text. And uh, it was from my brother, uh, and this is what he said on June 4, 2021, at 12.15 p.m. Ambulance at mom and dad's place. Dad fell over in the shower, He's having difficulty breathing. I knew it was Friday, and I knew in preparation for the Sabbath, my dad would be taking a shower, getting his family ready, and this was his routine, so I knew that's where he would be. Mom called me to ask us to pray for him. Hey, doesn't sound good. His face is blue. So I, uh, I pulled over on I-80, and I began to respond to the text. I still remember the spot every time I drive it, every time I fly to work. Um, my mom had called my brother, Mel, and uh, he was on the phone with her, and he was relaying to me everything that was going on, uh, trying to surmise what he thought was going on with my mom at the time, and uh, trying to make sure that I was aware of everything. So I just sat there on the phone. I sent a text to Becky and said, listen, as soon as you land, just be aware, I'm only 15 minutes away, but um, this is what's going on and I will call you uh, as soon as you are in the arrival area. So eventually Becky arrived, and uh, she was on the phone. So I'm talking to her, and I'm relaying the next texts that are coming through. Uh, 1.05 p.m., he said, uh, he's still on the floor in the same position. And I said, oh my, I think they're administering oxygen through pumping manually. I hear a constant pumping sound in the background, and I asked if it was a monitor cuff. Um, I think they're administrating more adrenaline. And then at 1.19, he just wrote and said, he's dead. And I said, let me know when I can call. Let me know when I can call. 
It was one hour and four, four minutes from their very first text until my father was gone. And that was June 4, 2021. Two years later, on June 2, 2023 this year, my mother passed away from her six-month battle with pancreatic cancer. And then 19 days later, on June 21, Becky, my wife, passed away after battling 18 months with glioblastoma cancer. It's a terminal form of brain cancer. So June has become very different for me now, right? It's a, a mixture of winter and summer because they're beautiful memories and they're hard memories. And June is full of deeper meaning because of the people in your life and the things that you go through. But uh, June has now meant that I can be transparent with you in a way that I couldn't be transparent with you before. Because I could not share with you until my parents, both of them, had passed away. I love my parents. Um, they were both uh, incredibly intelligent people. And so what I preface and what I share with you, you understand that it comes from a heart of deep love and deep respect for them. My father spoke uh, five languages. He could read Greek and Hebrew fluently. He spent his entire life, towards the end of his life, retranslating the entire Bible. And I have a copy of that where he corrected the way he felt the translations were when it came to the word spirit inside there, but he, he loved that kind of stuff. He was a great scholar. My mother was just as intelligent. She spoke four languages, was an artist, incredible chef. And when, she, when we were adults as kids, we grew up, uh, she went back to school and uh, completed an undergraduate degree in mathematics. Both my parents, though, were deeply, deeply private people. Um, transparency was not in their vocabulary. That was very difficult. So I had no idea that my dad was battling cancer. I didn't know he was sick. The last time I saw him, and I saw my parents two, three times a year, I would go back to London, I'd see them. The last time I saw him, I, uh, I gave him a hug, I gave him a kiss. He had this uh, kind of like six o'clock shadow beard, very prickly on the side. I remember his cheek pressed against my cheek. And that was the last time I saw him as I waved my car and I said goodbye and I left. But I had no idea. We didn't even know what he died of. We had to have an autopsy done to verify it because he never went and saw doctors. We grew up um, very, very simple in England. Uh, we grew up very, very poor. Um, I actually lost count of all the houses that I lived in. Uh, it's, it's actually been a really interesting take on my own life that I have moved so many times that I can kind of flex through kind of anything inside there. I can't remember how many cars I worked on, but I have worked on cars. I have changed everything you could ever imagine that's ever possible in a car. And uh, I often finished working on a car and would have an entire bucket full of extra screws that I thought were just generous donations. Uh, we went on, as a family, my parents and, uh, and my brother and I, we went on vacation only once in our lives together. And that was to go to the Middle East in search of the lost Ark of the Covenant, which I will save for another day, because <laughs> that was an amazing adventure. Um, I remember one house we lived in where we had to wash the dishes before we ate because of the mouse or rat droppings on the dishes. I understood what it is to be without nothing. 
for several years, uh, I remember the way we would wash clothes, and this is what we did. We had, uh, we had this washing machine. It was in the kitchen, and uh, I would take a pipe, and I would do this. I'd take a pipe, and we'd fill it up from the kitchen sink and fill the entire washing machine up, throw all the clothes in, and then just let it agitate for hours, back and forth. And then I would drain this washing machine into buckets and then pour in more water and rinse it for hours. And then do that again and then rinse it for hours. And then I would take the clothes out and I would wring every single item by hand and then I would line dry them. And this was the routine that I did and I was just used to washing clothes this way. Obviously now when I go to my Samsung machine and it has music as I open the door, <laughs> I'm like, da -da -da, like Beethoven's fifth. And I drop in my Tide Pods, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> this is the way of the future. <laughs> um, I, uh, I understand what it's like to go without a meal. I know you're shocked, uh, <laughs> but I understand what it's like to go without a meal. But I also appreciated that my parents, whenever we ate, would always give the best to their kids. They would always have this and they would do this. It's actually probably the reason why when I go out with friends, I find it very hard if friends pay for the meal. I feel I have to pay for the meal all the time because it's my way of being generous and way of I living into that space because my parents were very generous people even though they had nothing. And I enjoy that as well. But if at any point I wanted to engage in a deeper personal area, they really struggled. I used to think it was because of their poverty I used to think maybe it's because of their faith practice. Uh, I used to think maybe it's just their generation. And that's the, just a generational thing inside there. But I have spent 20 plus years visiting people all over the world, being in their homes, breaking bread with people, sitting down in a coffee shop with you, right? When we, we have become good friends, and I have discovered, I've discovered that you have to make a choice about who you are. You choose whether you want to be transparent or not. In the case of my mother, I knew that she was dying. Um, and so I flew over in March this year to go see her. And I tried to explain to her that this is the last time I'm going to see her. And I tried to engage in a deep, meaningful conversation. But she just struggled. She did not want to admit that death was coming. She did not want to engage in that area. She just wanted us to just be in another place, a veneer level, if you like. And it was just really difficult for her to do that. And what I wanted was the unvarnished truth. I wanted real wood. I wanted full transparency. I wanted to hear her thoughts and her fears. I wanted my prayer with her, my anointing with her to be authentic and to be transparent in that space. And I tell you this, I think we all want transparency. You, you know, when you, you watch the markets and you watch the markets go up or they start to decline, we all want transparency about what's going on. When, when giving starts to decline in a local church and pastors move and things change and people are suspicious, we all want transparency. When marriages fail and kids are distressed and services are called in, we all want transparency. When we go to the hospital and we come out feeling worse, we all want transparency. But it's not as easy as we would imagine. It's really easy to ask other people to be transparent, <laughs> but it's very hard for you to be transparent. That is unless something changes. And I wonder this about Christmas forever, whether Christmas is the season that, you know, because there's music and there's laughter and people are just 
in a, in a more joyous place because there's like food and lights on people's houses and you just hear music everywhere you go and it's always jingle bells and holy night. And it's just, it just feels like a great season that maybe this is what makes people become a little bit more transparent. And I think that at Christmas time, our storytelling starts to change. I think in the season, we, we just enjoy starting to share more about who we are. And we talk to people differently because maybe we're cold. <laughs> and we just want to be able to be closer with them. But when we speak and when we share in a community, we, we deliver one of three things. We're either going to deliver some facts, or we're going to deliver a story, or we're going to bring a bit of drama. Now, let me break this down for you so you understand where I'm going with transparency inside here. Facts would be... The queen died. That's the facts. A story would be, the queen died and the king is depressed. But the drama would be, the queen died and the king is bankrupt. Oh, that's inside. That you start to understand inside there. So I think my parents were very good at facts. They loved to share facts, data points all the time. They could handle the story a little bit. And they would enter the drama on some subjects, but it was very controlled. They couldn't go there farther. I would suggest that there are, in fact, the three types of transparency as well that we deliver these facts, these stories, and these dramas through. And as we share them, we should remember that they're not interchangeable. So be wise about your transparency, okay? Um, the first is grapevine transparency. This is just really, really simple. It's just, it's fun. You know, you'll say, you never guess what I heard. <laughs> And somebody shares a little insight about somebody else and, and some news, some stuff that's going on in life. And it's just fun. Great fine transparency. We all do it every single day. Then there's delicate transparency. And this is if you're really honestly trying to share. But, you know, if you share in the right way, it can be good. But it can also be a little bit dangerous. So you have to be wise about that. And then there is responsible transparency. This is when you share something, you hope that it will actually cause some kind of reflection or it will cause some kind of action in somebody's life. So responsible transparency is really, really intense, and uh, it expects a lot out of you. In the Bible, there's a guy called John who wrote the gospel in the book of Revelation, the last book as well, and uh, he, was, uh, he was pretty good at explaining and using all three types of transparency. So when John would refer to himself in the apostle, in the apostle he would say, and I, John, you know, the one that Jesus really loved. You know, it's a little bit of grapevine transparency, a little bit of humor, shows the insights into who this person is. When he said, we were running to the tomb, Peter and I, and I got there first. I mean, like, of all the things you have to say, you know, he just, you know, a little bit of grapevine transparency. But uh, he also understood delicate transparency. When uh, he ha told the story about uh, the confession and a conversation of a, a particularly high-ranking church leader who was struggling with his church, his conscience was not in alignment with the church's actions. And he explained this entire story of Nicodemus and how Nicodemus had this moment with Jesus that Jesus helped him to reframe himself. So he handled all of that incredible, delicate transparency. And then... John entered into responsible transparency so well. And what John had to do is he had to wait until everyone had gone. When all the other disciples had died, he thought, what, I'm going to now write this gospel, and I'm going to say some things that I need to say because I think it's really important for us to all know this. 
So there's this wonderful story found in John chapter 18. And it's just a moment uh, before Jesus has been arrested and the crucifixion's coming. And it's in that moment, and uh, this is how the story begins. Starting in John 18, verse 15. Simon, Peter, followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of these men's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Then you scroll down a little bit further in the story to like verse 25, and it says there, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. Then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, said, this is like a family thing, right? The guy said, my cousin, my cousin was at the garden. There was a guy who cut his ear off. I'm pretty sure it was you. <laughs> Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and once a rooster crowed. Poor Peter. Quite a moment in history, but more importantly in his personal life. Knowing when to use your voice and when to not use your voice is never easy. But John doesn't stop right there. He takes the story with Peter, the denial, the moment, and by the end of the entire gospel, he arrives in John chapter 21, and he brings us back to responsible transparency. And this is what he says in John chapter 21, verse 9. When they got out on the land, that's Jesus and the other disciples, they saw a charcoal fire in place. I was like, wow. Transparency is always difficult. And it doesn't feel natural to us. We just keep kind of hide it to ourselves. But what John tells us that Jesus takes the time to build a charcoal fire, to allow the embers from that fire to trigger a memory inside Peter so he can have a deep, responsible, transparent conversation with Peter. And over that charcoal fire, he cooked some good fish and chips. <laughs> and when the smell of the fish and chips and the coals were there, he said to Peter, let's talk, shall we? <laughs> and he made this meal, and he broke bread with him. And I think some of the most amazing conversations I've ever had in my life have been over a meal. Sometimes over the perfect cup of coffee, and we sit down, and we connect, and we remember each other, and we live in this space. Jesus has this responsible, transparent conversation with him, and it changed Peter. It restored Peter. It saved Peter, and it called him to be a follower, and we do the same today as well. It caused an action, and it caused reflection. So, when uh, I first met Becky, um, I, I don't know a lot of jokes. Uh, I, well, actually, I only know one joke. And so, uh, I told her this joke. And uh, this, what I share with you, <laughs> I share a post again, because my parents have passed, I can share this now, and uh, I would never have shared it if they were around. So. Um, there was this joke in England uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s that was very funny. If I had shared this in the 1970s or 1980s, you would be roaring with laughter. But this is 1993. 
and uh, I still thought it was funny, and uh, so I shared the story with Becky. I won't tell you the joke, it's just about a hedgehog and a rabbit. <laughs> and you know, any English story with a hedgehog and a rabbit is going to be funny anyway. So, <laughs> 1993, uh, I shared this joke, and she was gracious enough to laugh at it. Uh, she didn't think, Jeff, that it was actually that great, but you know, she thought it was okay. But as a result of this, um, she bought me a stuffed hedgehog. I have added the word stuffed because when I say the rest of the story, you'll understand the significance of this. It was not a real hedgehog. It was not an animal that had been stuffed. It was a totally fake, synthetic, stuffed animal, one that you would buy a child, right? Unless you're a taxidermist then maybe not, but it was a stuffed hedgehog. And I bought her in return a stuffed rabbit. Uh, again, totally synthetic, <laughs> not real. I didn't shoot a rabbit and stuff it, this is just, I'm clarifying. So we were sitting in, uh, in my room at my parents' place, and this is before we got married, and we were talking, and then Becky said to me, hey, where's, where's the hedgehog? And I said, and I said, uh, I don't know. Uh, I left it on, on the bookcase. I, I don't know where it is. Uh, I'll go find out. So I went downstairs, went into the kitchen, and I found my mom, and I said, hey, mom, um, where's the hedgehog? And she gave me this look. She said, talk to your father. I was like, talk to my father? Is my father into hedgehogs? <laughs> Does he have a secret collection in his office? Has he, is he a serial hedgehog collector that I had no idea? So I go find my father. Um, and I talked to him, and I said to him, hey, Dad, you know, uh, hedgehog, uh, Becky gave it to me, and um, it's up in the room, it's gone. And he said, you know, um, in, in some countries, uh, the hedgehog is considered to be a sign of evil. It is an evil, evil thing. So I took it out, and I burnt it. And I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah. That's the kind of thing that normally happens. <laughs> I was like, uh... I'm going to go back upstairs <laughs> and relay this story to Becky. <laughs> you burnt the hedgehog? Yep, yep, burnt. It's all gone. Um, you know, I, you probably have some questions for me, and uh, maybe we should set up, you know, a charcoal fire, a great meal, and we can talk about this <laughs> at some stage. But, um, but yeah, I, I was surprised that Becky married me. I, I, we, we talked about this recently, and we, you know, we talked about the fact that this moment had happened, and she said, I was uh, a little concerned. Uh, <laughs> I was like, a little concerned? I'd be freaked out. <laughs> Your in-laws do this? <laughs> but uh, we'll unpack that moment someday. There was, the truth is that uh, there was nothing that I couldn't share with this, uh, with Becky. And uh, this was the greatest thing about it. There was nothing that I couldn't share with her that we couldn't process. Uh, she could handle everything. And I have that kind of relationship with so many people. I have it with you. I feel like we have had conversations around charcoal fires, and as it, we haven't even had the Christmas music playing in the background, and we have talked about deep things, responsible, transparent conversations that have changed my life and have changed your life. And I know it's fun to have grapevine transparency. I know it's fine to have delicate transparency, but responsible transparency is just so next level. It's so good, and this season calls us into that. I look at my parents, and uh, I look at the isolation that they had during their final years, and I look at Becky with her responsible transparency, how she was fully open, and the absolute love that she was shrouded in. 
love from you that just lifted her soul every single day. You were amazing. You online, you know who you are. You were amazing. You made a difference in her life. Your responsible transparency, hers with you. She had some of the most amazing conversations with people because she was open and you were open back. When I think about Christmas, and I think about that beautiful text that Doris read to us today, that Jesus was called Emmanuel, that God is supposed to be with us, that can only happen, that can only happen if you're gonna have an honest conversation. But I believe that we have been Emmanuel to each other. I believe that we are God in each other's lives, that God speaks through us to each other. And I think this season of Christmas, this season of Christmas calls us to deep reflection and transparency. I have shared so many chuckle moments with you. We have uh, wept and we have laughed and we have dreamed. And I hope that this Christmas, you with your loved ones and your community will weep, will laugh and dream because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus.